Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 156, recorded November 6, 2019. And we're recording from a special place here at Microsoft Ignite in Florida, live. Maybe you might be able to hear some background noise, and that's because it's, it's right here. And Brian is not here because he couldn't get away to come to the conference. So I have not one but two special guests Dan Bader. Hey, Dan. Hey, how's it going, Mike? Great to have you here. And Cecil Phillip. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Hey, welcome back, both of you. Been on independently now together, very quite close together in this little recording area we put together. So Cecil and I were sharing a mic, so we get to like snuggle up here on the couch. <laughs> you guys will be fast friends after this. Yeah, we're getting some intimate time together while we record this podcast. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, let's start by thanking DigitalOcean for sponsoring the show. Check them out at pythonbytes.fm slash DigitalOcean. More on that later. Dan? There's a lot of debate about how you create a virtual environment. I know both of you guys are fans of virtual environment, but there's VENV, there's virtual environment, there's poetry, there's all these things. You've got a recommendation for us, huh? Yeah, so I, I wanted to um, you know, call out or uh, like showcase an article that uh, Brett Cannon published recently. And um, so basically it's about a best practice you can apply when you're running commands like pip install. So um, what Brett recommends in his article is instead of running pip space install in whatever library we want to install instead you can run python dash m space pip and then run whatever command you want to run because brett likes to type a lot or what because, you know, because he, he, he enjoys typing so much <laughs> and uh that's probably why why we should all use that um now so the, the the reason is that uh if you use this other form like dash m will basically load a module and execute it it will you know exactly which python environment this will affect. So if you just go pip install, it would be possible that pip actually points to a different environment, maybe not the one that you think it does point to. Um, so maybe you know, you're accidentally installing something into your Python 2 environment, but you want it to go into your Python 3 environment. That happened to me when I was new. I'm like, why is request not here? I don't understand what so is going on. So frustrating. Like, yeah, it's, I think I type pip instead of pip 3 or something silly. I was new and young. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I just really like this article because it gave some like pretty clear recommendations, and I'm I'm pretty much on board with all of them. And um, you know, if you if you follow this this format, whenever you run pip install, you will always just be 100 percent 100 percent sure that um, you're actually installing stuff into the right environment. Because if you hit the wrong environment, you know you have to go and like uninstall stuff. Maybe you end up upgrading something that you didn't want to upgrade, and it's it can get messy. And so I just felt like yeah, that's a good recommendation there and an article worth reading because uh, Brett goes into a lot of the backstory and like why this is a good idea. That's really cool. My first thought is like, I need to alias this so that pip just means right, Python right. 3-m pip. <laughs> Cecil, I know that you are a fan of virtual environments. Do you do anything special or do you just run Python 3 or do you just do pip directly or do you use something like poetry or something else like that? I'm actually a big fan of um, pip env actually. Okay. And um, so, so we do a, this live stream randomly in a we actually showed that off on our last episode, how we could use pyenv and pipenv. Uh -huh. For our students, it was really important for us to have like that background information. Yeah. But then now they know how like these little bits and pieces go together. And having like one command line tool that'll be able to like orchestrate all of that stuff for us like just is 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 like a game changer. Yeah, that's awesome. So you're doing with Brian Brian Clark, you're doing a Twitch live stream programming series, which is really fun. We're gonna talk about on Talk Python yeah. further down the road, like pretty much in real time close, but in release time far apart sort of thing. But yeah, so it seems like there's a lot of beginners in that world. And so this is probably a tricky concept for them. Yeah, it totally is. And so using something like it, so much less for them to worry about in terms of like 
installing and setting up and like what's the right combination of commands I need to use, what order I need to run them in. If I made a mistake, like how do I back out of it and like restart over? That one command, it just kind of allows us to manage environments and manage packages and it just makes it so much easier. Super cool. Well, we are here at Microsoft Ignite, which is, I had no sense of the scale of this place until I came here. 29,000 people. Yep. Ignite is massive, man. I don't know. Because Ignite is so much more than just a developer audience. It's developers, it's IT folks, it's CTOs, and you know all these different types of folks, right. all at one conference. So you know, you know, when you bring all of those people <laughs> together, you get a pretty massive turnout. <laughs> and you get a lot of steps in. You get a lot of steps in, man. <laughs> um, so as you can imagine, a conference center is humongous. Yeah. And so there's sessions all across the conference center. There's sessions across the street and down the street. And <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes you got to do a little bit of walking. That's right. The reason I bring all this up is there was a pretty big announcement here that's quite close to Visual Studio Code, which is one of one of the most popular Python code editors these days. So, you know, tell us about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like you said, like Visual Studio Code that runs on our desktop, runs on Linux, Mac, Windows, and then the Python extension has something like, I don't know, like 24 12, 12 million? Mil- yeah, I don't know. It's got a mini, 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 mil- it's, mil- it's tons it's of millions of downloads. the most popular thing for Visual Studio Code, way over C Sharp, way over C++. It's, it's massive. Right, definitely. And so the Python extension is easily like the most popular extension for Visual Studio Code by like leaps and bounds. But one of the big things that we had that we had announced this week was our new Visual Studio online environment. And this is like the real Visual Studio online and not the old one. And, and when I say <laughs> that, I mean, so we used to have a product called Visual Studio Online, but that was essentially what turned into Azure DevOps. Okay. So Visual Studio Online used to be our CI, CD. Yeah, it was hardly even Visual Studio. It was like the continuous integration story and like TFS and right, like right, all right, the, right. Like the source control bits. It was and source all that, control, yeah. it was ticket management, it was bills and those types of things. That name was hijacked. Yeah. And so, you know, now we're repurposing the name. <laughs> and now Visual Studio Online is exactly what you think it is, right? It's Visual Studio Online. More specifically, it's Visual Studio Code Online. Right, which is so interesting because Visual Studio Code is an Electron JS app, so it's got like this front end and this back end already on your machine, like got Node and then Chrome like packaged into one thing, but now you just put like lots of distance and stuck part of it in the cloud, right? Yeah, totally. And so the background of it is a little bit of, so we had Visual Studio Code and we also have some extensions that allow you to do what we call like remote sessions and remote debugging into different environments. Mm-hmm. So for instance, I could have Visual Studio Code on my machine and I could debug into a Docker container. I could debug into a Linux machine. I could debug into a workspace that's not on my local machine. But then not only can I do that, I can have my environment-specific settings and tools I have installed, extensions and those types of things uh-huh. on that environment and not on my machine. So that, all cool. that happens is that when I start to remotely connect to that machine, I'll just have all of those additional things just added to my currently working workspace. So we're like, okay, well, if we can do that, what if we just created like a completely online experience for that? So kind of like what you said, right? Like, you know, Visual Studio Code is built on web technology. It's, you know, JavaScript and CSS and, you know, those types of things. And essentially they just, they took the editor and they took all the tooling and they put it in a web browser. Yeah, it's so cool. It's really a nice experience. And you get basically an Ubuntu machine and like you get a, like a little Docker is it Docker or just straight VM or what? Do you Honestly, get? I have no idea what type of machine is running. But you get on. some machine with a terminal that like your stuff lives on, right? Yeah, you get a machine with a terminal. So essentially, what you do is you go in and you could like create a new environment, or if you have an already existing Git repo, there's some markup that you could add to your Markdown file that'll add like a button in your Markdown. Oh, is it like like the launch binder for notebooks? But instead, you like launch in VS Code, right? Like you know, you see launch binder, or if you might have seen the thing that says um like build succeeded or something like yeah. that, like those little tabs, those little buttons you can add into your Git repo. 
So you can add one of those that just says create environment. And what will happen is per person, right? Like you'll get an individualized environment for yourself, right? So if I have my GitHub repo and, you know, Dan can click the button and you can click the button and I can click the button, but we'll have three different environments pointing to the same repository. I see. So it's like spin up a little dev machine, but it links back to the source control. Just right, yeah. which is great, right? Because when you think about companies that have situations where it takes really long time for us to do setup, but I got to install dependencies and I, you know, like there's multiple things that need to happen before I can be even start to become productive, right? I got to install this OSS thing and I got to install like SSL and like stuff has to happen, right? Yeah. Before work can actually happen. Now we could have these predefined environments I could just be like, hey, let's just create this environment for this particular code project, and now we could just get to work. And it's running in the browser. I don't have to install anything on my machine if I don't want to, and I have everything I want like right there, yeah. like just running inside of the cloud. That's super cool. You could use it from an iPad. You could use it from like a Chromebook, other places where it's hard to run code, right? I've had teammates that have run it from iPads, <laughs> from their cell phones, from, from all over the place. Hey, hey Siri, refactor this. <laughs> what was really cool, if you, if you remember the keynote, Amanda Silva was telling us a story about how she ran it from inside the airplane. Like she was debugging the demo that she showed using the project for the demo. On the airplane Wi-Fi? On the airplane, which is an airplane Wi-Fi. And if anybody's used airplane Wi-Fi, we know that's not like the most... Yeah, that's sipping through a straw. The most high bandwidth situation. That's cool, man. But it was super cool. So people can try this now, right? And the link is in the show notes. Yeah, people can definitely try it out now. Let us know what you think about it. I ran it myself personally just the other day. The Ubuntu machine that it comes with comes with Python 3.8 by default, which is great. So I didn't have to install it or do anything with it. And I think that's also really cool because Python 3.8 is like, what, like two or three weeks old as of today? Yeah, it's it's brand new. Yeah, it still has that new Python smell. (laughs) These are brand new, fresh, you know, machines and images that you get to run your code on. So I think this is really cool. That's a great one. Thanks for sharing that. Now, before we get on to another one, let me tell you about DigitalOcean. They're sponsoring the show. All of our infrastructure runs on DigitalOcean. Super, super happy. We ship like 15 terabytes of data through there. We have you know millions of requests and just love, love using it. So if you want something like we got going on here, check them out at pythonbytes.fm slash digitalocean. Now, this last one, speaking of Python 3.8 and 3.9, the next version of Python should come a lot quicker because we've now switched from an 18-month release cycle to a 12-month release cycle. So this is a project that Lucas Ling has been working on for a long time, trying to make this happen now that he's uh, in charge of like the release management. And so Brett Cannon, speaking of Brett Cannon from earlier, he uh, sent out a message from officially from the steering council, which is a cool way to announce thing that after a long discussion on changing the cycle, we've decided to accept HEP 602. And it's now uh, yearly, which I think is great because it's just weird to have like alternating times of the year or like this, it just seemed real, one really long and two kind of weird. Like, what do you guys think about this? I think this is a is a good change because it kind of puts everything on a very regular cadence in the year. So, you know, when you think about when Python is uh, PyCon is happening in the year, uh, I guess if you have the sort of eighteen month release cycle, you're always kind of in a different phase of development and preparing that release. But if it's on a twelve month fixed cycle, then you can always say, okay, you know, we're going to get ready to, I don't know, finalize or we're like in this phase, you know, getting ready to a beta beta version or whatever during that time, which I think makes planning um, a lot easier for everyone. And um, yeah, it, I, can, I can understand like the rationale for, for that going to a 12-month cycle. Makes sense to me. Yeah. I'm actually pretty happy to see this. I think what I hope to see out of this is just, you know, we'll be able to see new features faster, try them out faster. And, you know, you won't have to wait until like those official releases come out on that longer cadence. 
I think it's the same with like most development environments is, you know, unless it's an official release, most people really don't play around with like the betas and the alphas as much. Yeah. And so it's only when like the official releases come out where you get like most of the developers and companies really jumping on new features. So I think with this shorter cadence now, we should be able to get, you know, more feedback and I guess, you know, people to be able to iterate faster and like some of these new cool things that are coming out in the language. Yeah, we don't have to have as much patience. We can get right to the cool new features that are coming out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this. I actually linked not to the official announcement directly, but to a Reddit thread because the Reddit thread has a bunch of feedback and it's, I would say it's pretty mixed. It's like 50-50 positive, negative. It's really, it's an interesting look and it's just side of what people are thinking intersected with the weirdo Reddit world. So <laughs> that's that's pretty cool. But my, you know, that people are saying, well, it's going to be shorter, so there's not as much time for testing. So I'm concerned about quality. But there was a lot of pressure on that 16th and 17th month to get your feature in. Because if you don't get it, it's a year and a half. you got to wait if you miss that deadline. So you're going to scramble and get that in. Now it's, it takes the pressure off a little bit. So I, I think it's actually a, a pretty positive thing. Dan, you want to tell us uh, about this next one? Another uh, release story? Yeah, sure. So I feel like this is the the Brett Cannon and Lukas Lange uh, episode of Python. <laughs> yeah, Bites. shout out to those um, guys. So yeah, I've got another cool announcement. So Black, which is the uncompromising code formatter for for Python code, just had a new release. So this version is called uh, 1910 Beta Zero or B Zero. And um, the way I understand it, or the way I, I interpret uh, Lukas's um, Twitter feed, um, they're actually getting ready for releasing a stable version or stable release of, of Black, um, the first actual stable release for Black Friday this year, which I mean, oh, it's kind of a beautiful yeah. uh, you know, thing how the, the naming scheme is, work, uh, is working out there. And um, so maybe if, you know, if, if you're listening, you don't know what Black, the, the uncompromising code formatter is. So it is uh, essentially a, co- a tool that enforces a certain Python formatting standard or like a style guide. So it will reformat your code to be uh, PEP8 compliant and it, um, well, just the great thing is it will reformat your code and it would also call you out on any sort of, you know, anything that's misformatted or not following the standard. So it's a really great way to kind of establish a consistent code style in a, in a large code base and then put that in place on a CI system, you know, continuous integration. And to just right. make sure that you never have to argue about code formatting in a, a pull request again, <laughs> ever again, you know, if there's ever a problem, you just run black again and it's, it's great. And um, it's honestly, it's one of my favorite tools. Like I, I put it into every Python code base that I work with. It's been super stable, even though it's, it is still in, in beta technically, but I've been running it in production, if you will, very happily pretty much since it came out. And um, if you just want to try it out, there's also a interactive playground on the web at black.now.sh. That's really cool. I didn't know about that. That's yeah, nice. it's, it's really cool. Like you can just copy and paste a bunch of code there or just enter code and it will show you what, what black would do to the code and re- how it would reformat it. And um, yeah, highly recommend it. It's like, honestly one of my favorite, uh, most favorite tools there. Yeah, super cool. It'd be great to have that come out and be basically totally stable. Cecil, do you guys use that on your live stream? I think by default, we use this thing called Auto Pep 8. So when I say by default, we use Visual Studio Code, as you can imagine. Yeah. And the extension, when you save it, auto formats it, you know, based on if you have that yeah. setting turned yeah. on or not. And if you don't have like a formatter installed, it'll ask you at the bottom which one you want to use. And then it'll install one, right? So it's black as an option. I think there's one called YAPF. Yapf, or yeah, I'm not yeah, quite sure how you pronounce yeah. that one, but there's, there's that one. Get another formatter or something. <laughs> right, right, right. And then I think the default one that it uses is Auto Pep 8. Right. So if you just like click OK, it'll yeah, just yeah. use Auto Pep 8. 
or you could like select one of the other options as well. Boom. But I'm kind of interested to try this out, and I want to kind of see like what does the configuration look like, and like how can you tweak the settings and, and those types of things. Yeah, cool. I think it takes away a lot of the debate. My understanding is like it's kind of like the Model T. You can have it in color you want, long as like long as you want it in black, <laughs> right? So there's like not a lot of debate about the format. It's just like it does what it does. Exactly. So speaking of like formatting options, there's it's basically none, <laughs> so which is kind of cool because it prevents any arguments that you otherwise might have with a, with a team yeah. about you know preferences. So yeah, it's like a philosoph- philosophical choice there that you're making with, with this tool, I guess. Pretty cool. Cecil, you also talked when you talked about uh, Visual Studio Code, you just start by pointing to GitHub repo. Yeah. And you can like, na- once you load it up, you can navigate around within Visual Studio Code, right? Yep. So I mean, I think everything that we do as developers, like at one point in time, like touches GitHub. Like I yeah. think it's it's almost impossible today to write code that wasn't on GitHub or touch GitHub or use something like that was associated with GitHub at some point. If it wasn't for the weekends, imagine the streaks. You know? <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> so you know, so GitHub is obviously a super important tool for us for our industry. And you know, they've been releasing a tons of cool features like over the past couple of months. And one of the features I want to highlight today is their uh, code navigation. So inside of it, what you could do now is, you know, if you go to their if you click on a file and you go to like a code view. You could essentially like you know click on functions and you could see things like where was it referenced and where the definitions of the fu- where the definition of the function was and so you can imagine if I had like one super huge code file that I have open and I'm just looking at it in the default browser inside of GitHub.com, it makes it so much easier now for me to like jump and see where was that defined and whatever the case is and so now navigation within the browser is super easy. That click and go to definition is so cool because yeah, otherwise it'll even go cross file I think within a repo. It's it's pretty killer. It's really cool. And not only it supports Python obviously, but it supports tons of other languages like I think it supports Go, it supports JavaScript, Ruby, PHP. Again, like there's tons of language support, right? But um, obviously, like we're gonna be a little bit biased, and we're gonna, you know, <laughs> make sure we try out the Python support inside of there. Yeah, that's right. We tried it out. I even linked to a, a, a file where we know that it works from one of my courses. So this last one I want to talk about. It's gonna sound like a joke, but I really mean it as like a, a legitimate thing. I got a joke for you later. This thing I want to highlight is called lol commits, like laugh out loud commits, and the subtitle is selfies for software developers. So the idea is you install this thing and whenever you do a git commit, it will take the git commit message, it will take a screenshot or take a shot of you with your webcam, and then it will generate like a a meme-like picture with your commit message on there. So it will give you like this crazy, you know, like you could make a face like you're happy or sad, did it work out, did it not, why, you know, are you fixing a bug, is it a fun new feature? And so you can do this really cool like sort of meme looking picture here and then you can get plugins for like slack and twitter and stuff and like it'll like post these pictures back up to like say your team slack so someone not just knows there's a commit but they can see how you felt about it they can see the message what do you guys think about this i don't know how i never heard about this until you mentioned (laughs) it but this is like the coolest thing ever this is gonna make like committing code so much fun i know i'm gonna pay so much attention to the get commit message now you're just gonna be committing like all day every day now like i'm like i gotta get this commit in i gotta get this commit in (laughs) But I think this is super cool, man. I definitely want to try this out. <laughs> yeah, it looks pretty fun. It's very understated. Like, you know, it, it describes itself as being like the single most useful piece of software known to mankind and stuff. But it, I, no, in all, all seriousness, it's fun. It talks about like a lol repository where you commit these or like you can create animated GIFs of like your commits over time and like all sorts of weirdness. So it's, it's pretty fun. I just thought, you know, maybe this will like make working in teams a little more fun. 
Dan, what do you think? I think this is awesome. Like just looking at the website there, you apparently can have little, you can write your own plugins or there's different filter options. So you can get like a <laughs> unique style for your commits. I'm wondering if, you know, how frustrating this could be if you're accidentally maybe lull committing something where, I don't know, you know, you're waking up in the middle of the night and just got to get some code <laughs> out and maybe sitting there not really dressed yet or whatever. But oh, no, that is about part the of the fun, I guess. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to go into details of, of how I like to work, but... Uh, <laughs> awesome. This is great. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's pretty funny. But yeah, it seems like it actually could foster a little bit of team humor, but also connection, oh, yeah. right? Rather than just adult commit logs. It looks, looks fun. That's it for our main items. Uh, Dan, anything else you want to just throw out there quick? I would love to, you know, speaking of the, the latest release of Python 3.8, which just happened um, two, two weeks ago, I think. So at Real Python, we've just um, released an article highlighting all the new features in Python 3.8 and kind of going over the you know, all the nice and interesting new features that are in there, like the walrus assignment expressions and also stuff like the syntax warning that's going to, you know, it's, it's a new type of warning that's going to tell you about maybe some cases where you're using the is comparison instead of the, the double equal sign and stuff like that, where previously you would need a linter to highlight that. Now actually Python is going to call you out on that stuff, which is pretty cool. And um, yeah, that's something we just published on, on Real Python. Gerana Hiele did a fantastic job there. And um, I found that personally also very helpful, just getting up to speed with the latest changes. Yeah, awesome. Your articles are great. Bookicles, like we got to give them like a proper name. They're a little bit longer a than Bookicle, our- yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the course too. That, that's great. So uh, very nice there. Cecil, anything for you? What are you up to these days? Sure. I definitely want to call out the weekly stream that we do. Um, me and my buddy, Brian Clark, do a very introductory learning Python stream every Wednesday. It's at 11 a.m. Um, Eastern Standard Time. And essentially, we've just been going from the very bare bones all the way up to, you know, covering dif- different features of Python and things like, you know, what's a function and what's a for loop and like, you know, those, some of those types of things. Again, we just try to be very v- beginner friendly, uh, try to be just open to everyone. But it's a really fun time, right? Because it's not just me and Brian, like going back and forth, talking to each other about Python, but we get tons of questions from the community, tons of questions from folks inside of the stream. Yeah, it's super interactive, like way more than even webcast or something like that. It's really cool. Yeah, super interactive. You know, it's really cool when they ask a question like, oh, hey, what if I change this to this thing? Or what if I remove this line? Or what if we try to do things a different way? You know, we could do all of that on stream. It gets recorded. And then now not only are they learning from us teaching them, but we're also learning too because now there's just all of these different perspectives and scenarios that we're trying yeah, out yeah. live. And have you heard about this library? It does it all together or whatever. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Awesome, yeah. So I'll definitely throw a link to that in the show notes. All right, last for me, the Python Software Foundation yearly survey is out. So this is the biggest survey that gives us a look inside the trends, and it's in partnership probably with JetBrains. It was last year. I don't know if it is this year, but I'm guessing that's the case. And uh, they just do a super good analysis. And yeah, please go fill it out because it lets us know you know, what the world's up to. We already did ours, so uh, it's your turn now. Be sure to get, get to that. And also, I want to announce a new course on Anvil. I don't know if you all are familiar with Anvil. Anvil is a web framework, but it's not like Flask or Django. You know, some people think, should I do Anvil? Should I do a Flask? Django, this is really different. Like if you've ever tried to build web apps and you're like, I don't want to do JavaScript. CSS is like a nightmare. I don't really want to work with databases. All this deployment is a challenge. Like all that kind of stuff. You're like, I just want to do Python. Maybe for like an internal app or something cool like that for your company. This is a framework that will like run in the cloud. It will let you write server-side Python code, design the UI with a drag and drop, like widgety type thing very much like ASP.NET Web Forms, Cecil, actually, way back in the day. And the big deal is the front end runs Python in the browser. 
super well. It is ridiculously cool. You build a spa, a single page app in Python, which is actually kind of a dream. So check it out at talkpython.fm slash anvil. The course is free. You can play around with it. Uh, I thought I'd just put this one out here for people to get exposure to the courses. That actually sounds pretty cool. Do you know if it's doing like a WebAssembly thing or is it like translating Python to... I had Meredith, the guy behind the show, and um, another guy on the show, and I'm so sorry, I forgot his name, on to talk Python, to talk about Sculpt. They're using Sculpt, okay, which is a JavaScript implementation of the interpreter. So it doesn't compile it to JavaScript. It has like a JavaScript r- runtime that is like CPython, I believe. Okay. But it's not using WebAssembly. The reason it's not using WebAssembly is the interaction between the DOM and WebAssembly is actually very slow. And this is like a super chatty communication between the, the Python bits and the web UI. And it's actually slower in WebAssembly until they can improve that in a pro- that like cross WebAssembly DOM Got it. story. Got it. Okay. But it's primed for like a good WebAssembly story, isn't it? It kind of feels like that's what it would be. It should be. But yeah. I guess I completely understand, right? Because, you know, you'd go from Python to JavaScript and then JavaScript... <laughs> The web to, to WebAssembly, <laughs> WebAssembly yeah, yeah. There's this whole interpreter on top of an interpreter on top of an interpreter thing that's going on. Yeah, yeah. And so if you have like a fire and forget, like something happens in WebAssembly, it's fast and good. But if you're like doing super quick back and forth between the DOM, apparently that's slow. All right. So last thing, time for a joke. Now, I told you my lol commits was legit. I got another lol for you, lol code. So lol code is this official language specification. Last time I checked, it was on level, uh, it was level two. Like 1.2 was, a, no, no, hold on, I think it's at a different level now. Anyway, it's, it's an official language based on lol code. So I, this meme is passing a little bit in time, but you know, there was like the lol cats with all the weird like cat speak on the images with like a funny cat, like high world with HAI world, you know, and like weird stuff. So this is like a programming language derived out of that. And it's a joke, but you can literally run it. Like there's a commands for getting started. You get clone the repository, you see make it, and then you're ready to lol cat it, lol code it. So I just want to call out a few things of the language features here because they're pretty incredible. Yeah, we're on the spec 1.2 right now for the language. So if you have a, like a comment, you'd have something like, I has a var. And then if you want to have a comment, you say, btw by the way var is null and untyped things like that it has some really funny like error handling so you have try catch but you don't say try and catch you you like do the good part and then the good part is awesome thanks and then the 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 catch part or the accept part is no oh no uh let's see the 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 ifs statements are pretty awesome like oh really yeah really and then else if is maybe and then the else is no way. But the best, I think, really has got to be the switch statement. So maybe a little not safe for work, but it's just letters. So I'll just say them out. So if you want to like do a switch statement where maybe you have R or Y or G or B as colors, like as strings, you could say color, WTF question mark. Oh my God, quote R. And then you have your block. Oh my God, quote Y. You have your block of code. And then the, the default case is OMG WTF. That's the default in the switch. So this is just such a crazy language. But it, the thing that's even more crazy is somebody built an interpreter or a compiler for it. I think what's even crazier is that there's a spec here. And, and as we're looking at this spec, we're literally like scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. <laughs> like there is 507 lines of specification here that defines how this language even works. I think I got to try this out, man. Like this is crazy. It's a joke, but you could, it's probably Turing complete as well. Yeah, apparently this got started in 2007 and it's 
the latest update to the spec is from 2014. So it's, it's super cool that this has been maintained and updated since then. So. so how about that? A practical joke for you all. Yeah. Is there a just-in-time compiler for that? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I actually <laughs> don't even know what the performance like yeah. looks for for low code, but yeah. <laughs> it's probably pretty funny. Are you going to port uh, talkpython.fm to, to that? The lol code? Yeah, I'm thinking about rewriting the websites, and this is a real strong contender right now. Nice, nice. Because <laughs> I'd just be laughing every day. I'm like, it's a bug, but it's hilarious. Look at it. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been really good to have you both here. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, man. This has been awesome. Yeah, bye, guys. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.